Hello and welcome back to the Literary Salon podcast. I'm Damien Barr and I'm delighted you can join us for this special podcast about the Imagine Anthology published as part of Refugee Week. Right now there are, according to the UNHCR, at least 25.9 million refugees in the world, the most ever recorded. Every single one of these people has a past and a present. Every single one of these people deserves a future. Every single one of these people has a story. And some of these feature in a bold new anthology called Imagine, and Salon is sharing some of them in this special episode. The Imagine Anthology is a publishing collaboration between Counterpoint Arts and Visual Editions. It features poems, stories and essays from diverse voices, including Edmund Duval, Himesh Patel, Dina Nayeri and Anita Sethi, among others. As I said, it's part of Refugee Week, which is a UK-wide festival celebrating the contributions, creativity and resilience of refugees. The authors have been asked to explore one thing they would most like to change about humanity's future, to consider making the invisible visible. Themes address global issues such as open borders, hunger, power and shame, as well as reflecting on how our everyday lives Taekwondo, beekeeping or a front door key have the potential to be life-changing. Each piece is distinct but collectively they show how we are united in difference. Erica Wagner writes in a very powerful introduction, each piece is speaking out for change and speaking up for hope. You can read the full anthology at www.imagineanthology.com. For now, listen and imagine. An Introduction by Erica Wagner The title of Vesna Marek's essay in this collection encapsulates what we might imagine during and far beyond Refugee Week. We are all connected, she writes, in a piece which invites the reader to envision a world united rather than divided, and which demonstrates that this bond is not built by simply smoothing over what separates us. She quotes Audre Lorde, Difference is that raw and powerful connection from which our personal power is forged. Marek herself knows what it is to be a refugee. She was born in Mostar, Bosnia-Herzegovina, and left there at 16, fleeing the Bosnian War, which began in 1992. She is only one of the many voices in this anthology, speaking out for change, speaking up for hope, showing that we are united in our difference. Borders exist, by definition, to separate us from others, writes Gary Young. These are writers who break down borders. Dina Nayeri discovers an unlikely connection and a new life through Taekwondo. Taban Shoresh, having escaped Iraq with her family as a little girl, works to find what she calls her own superpower and succeeds. Rupi Kaur's poem sings with a voice that is the offspring of two countries colliding. Voices like these are needed now more than ever. According to UNHCR, the United Nations Refugee Agency, the total global refugee population is now at the highest level ever recorded, 25.9 million at the end of 2018. Persecution, Conflict, violence, climate crisis and human rights violations push individuals and families to take extreme risk and face terrible danger to find safety. 
only rarely in truth, do stories and images force us to confront the breadth and depth of this suffering in the world. Think of the photograph of the drowned body of three-year-old Aylan Kurdi, who was part of a group of Syrian refugees trying to reach the Greek island of Kos in 2015. Even then, a few news cycles pass and we look away, perhaps even more so when a global pandemic has us in lockdown, fearing for the lives of our loved ones, our livelihoods, our own futures. Yet, of course, the pandemic will only make the plight of those forced to flee more difficult and frightening. It's easy to feel helpless in the face of tragedy, but thinking creatively can inspire us and motivate us. Listening to the voices in this anthology will help us to do just that. Imagine is published for Refugee Week, a festival running across the UK, celebrating the contributions, creativity and resilience of refugees. It's been going since 1998 and is held every year around World Refugee Day on the 20th of June. It is now a growing global movement too. This year, Refugee Week asks us all to imagine a world where both the biggest and smallest of things could be life-changing. An act of imagination can be writing a poem or planting a garden. It can be a socially distanced smile at a stranger. And if something positive can be said to come out of COVID-19, it's that those acts of generosity and kindness have seemed, over the past few months, too numerous to count, visible not only on social media, but in our streets and neighborhoods all across the land. The pieces in Imagine from poets like Roger Robinson and Rupi Kaur, writers like Marina Luica and Edmund Duvall, showcase this generosity of vision. They show, too, how lives can be changed by positive action. Riyad al-Sus was a beekeeper in Syria. He writes of being born again in this life, born again in this country, when he came from Syria to Britain in 2015. Not only did he remake his life as a beekeeper, he now helps to run something called the Buzz Project, supporting refugees by offering them a free beehive and helping them to start their lives again. Our imaginations are bees buzzing and making, working together. Let us imagine then how sweet life can be and what we can do to make a difference. Imperatives by Momtaza Mary. Imperatives after Marilyn Buck. Avoid the headlines. Read the headlines. Read some Melvin Dixon. Remember this crisis is nothing like the last one, which was nothing like the one before that, or the one before that. Honour the specifics. Honour only your sleeping schedule. Change the subject. Change your clothes. Check your emails. Check your balance. Sharpen your age. Boycott sugar. Stir. Stretch. Stop eulogising the elders and actually call them for once. Downward dog. Rearrange the wider rooms of your orchestrated futures. Abandon the religion of task management. Like always, it will be easier to harm those closest to you. Try to be more imaginative with your cruelty. Better yet, Share your grief. There's more than enough to go around. 
Don't replace sheep with the arithmetic of ambulance sirens. Like any poet worth their salt, think about the moon. Don't write about it, though. This is not a time for poems, which is exactly why it is a time for poems. Lose track of your inadequacies. Pass both time and blame under the table. Broadcast your apologies. Leave a blood-red handprint on your front door. Paint your nails with what's left. Sign the petition. Send the form. Befriend yourself. Learn the undertones of your favourite lotion. Study the shape of a faded scar. This, like the chip mug, is your territory. Make a playlist for no one in particular. Live open-mouthed and open-ended. Invent new and increasingly desperate ways to use your hands. Clap. Cry. Light a rag. Renounce. Imagine a world in which compassion for others isn't just a choice, but an obligation. By Himesh Patel. Imagine a world in which compassion for others isn't just a choice, but an obligation. In the past 10 years, as I've navigated my 20s and come to understand the world in which I live, a disturbing reality has come to light. That some people seem to view compassion for others as an option, a choice, something from which they can abstain. So many do just this. They choose to turn the other cheek, or in the case of so many cruel and morally corrupt governments around the world, actively encourage a lack of compassion for others. These others are human beings. People with names, families, lives that they have been forced to leave behind. In acts of sheer desperation, they come to the shores of a foreign land seeking aid, shelter, someone to tell them they are cared for, that they are loved, that they are worthy of having a place to call home. Yet increasingly, a choice has been made by those in power to demonise these people, to use them as a scapegoat, to blame them for governmental greed and failure. Sadly, so many of us fall for this cheap trick. But I choose to hold on to hope. I hold on to the hope that, with time and the hard work of so many empathic, selfless people, understanding will grow. As the positive impact of caring for each other, from our neighbours to those on the other side of the world, becomes undeniable, I hope we can break down the wall of lies that the selfish and fearful have built between us. I hope we can decide that there is no option other than to care for each other, to look out for one another, to love without prejudice. I hope you'll join me in imagining a world in which compassion for others isn't just a choice, but an obligation. A Letter to My Daughters by Wad Al-Khatib My dear girls, for you, I imagine a world so different to the one you were born into. For your future, I dream of a world 
where there is peace, where there is justice. But more than anything, I imagine a world in which you can have hope. I dream that you will live in a world where all people can live freely and where those who commit terrible crimes are stopped and are held to account, where the attacks by the Russian and Assad regime forces that have been killing Syrian people for the past nine years will come a distant but powerful memory, a world where hope is not destroyed by violence. For you, I dare to imagine a world without blood in the streets, a world you don't recognize the sound of an approaching shell. I dream that you don't know what building looks like before and after they have been hit by airstrikes. And one day, I hope that your own children don't even need to know the meaning of the words barrel bump or impunity. I close my eyes and dream of a world where all people can stand for their human rights without being so cruelly punished for speaking their truth. This may seem so easy to others to imagine, for people who already have that freedom now. It's not hard to picture such a world, but to me, but to me, this is as much of a dream landscape as the one in the fairy tales I read to you at bedtime. I imagine a world where your own stories, the one you will tell, are not just tales of how you wish to return to Aleppo, but that those hopes will have become a reality. And that's our greatest desire for freedom and democracy for Syria. The basic rights that we all fought so hard for will finally have become true. And you know, my girls, more than anything, I dream of a world in which you can understand why today your father and I say we dare to dream and we will never regret dignity. The Job of Paradise by Roger Robinson The Job of Paradise It is the job of paradise to comfort those who have been left behind, to think that all those loved and lost would live on there like tiny gods. It is the job of mumble prayers to help you calm your hurts and fears. It is the job of the long black hearse to show we head to death from birth. It is the job of the clean, neat grave to remind us how to live our days. If only I could live my days till death suffice and make earth feel like paradise. Imagine a world where the gods of money and power no longer exist. By Onjali Ruff They say your imagination can take you anywhere. But as much as my imaginings for the future may want to climb aboard a space rocket and head out into space to touch a star or three, my deepest imaginings find themselves still tied firmly to this tiny, fragile and wondrous planet called Earth. Climbing above a hoverboard, Marty McFly style, 
my imagining swishes and zooms forwards to a new moment in our global history. A moment when the two gods of modern living, money and power, have been well and truly toppled, for the foods which fuel their growth no longer exist. Gone is the main course, comprised of invisible beings cowering over maps that don't belong to them, toying with miniature soldiers and a ruler, as they divided, felled and destroyed entire nations to appease their personal god of power for longer. Gone is the golden goblet, filled with endless scrolls scripting out billion-dollar weapons contracts upon which the gods of money and power found their feet. And gone are the side dishes of burnt forests and animals, sacrificed in the name of big business, and the staple bread and butter of human trafficking and enslavement, which fed and resulted from all the above. The table has been cleared, smashed and burnt. Those foods no longer exist. And without their traditional feasts, the old gods of money and power have starved, shrunk and crumbled into our earth. In their stead, from London to Delhi to Beijing, from Washington to Wellington and all the lands and rivers and seas in between, have risen new pillars. Hundreds, thousands, millions of them. Pillars of pure, brilliant white, rising up like trees. Some small and brand new, like tiny seedlings. Others as tall as a distance between the earth and the sky. There is no worshipping. No sacrificing at these new altars going on here. No grand feasts or maps or a single divisive ruler is to be seen. These pillars are of a new order, holding up a unified planet which thrives on a revolutionary understanding of wealth and success. One which dictates that the richest nations are those with the most peaceful lands, the most deeply happiest of peoples and the most luscious of forests where the biggest deals being made between countries is the sharing and trading of skills and knowledge for the betterment of their societies, and goods gifted by a nature and a population that is now no longer working under duress, constraint or fear. It's a beautiful world my imagining has led me to. Turns out a world in which not a single person is having to flee the bombs of war, man-made disasters or the violence of hate which so many secretly profit from is quite a gorgeous place to be. Maybe, just maybe, one day I won't need to close my eyes and climb on a hoverboard to see it. On the Resurrection by Tim Finch on the Resurrection An English churchyard in early summer. The church porch is covered with white roses. There is much yew and ivy and box, quite clipped. Out on the river, beyond the kissing gate, a packed pleasure craft is pulling away from a jetty. It is a warm and sunny day, and removing the stone lids from their raised graves, or brushing the earth from their burial mounds, or leaning on their headstones, is a host of figures, some naked, some in white gowns, some in everyday clothes. Some look rather baffled. Others appear mildly curious or are serene or are chatting with friends or family members. There is no fervour or ecstasy in the resurrection in Cookham, 1927. 
the scene is peaceful, pleasing, most familiar. I first became fully aware of Stanley Spencer's painting, certainly one of the greatest English paintings of the 20th century, at around the same time that Imagine by John Lennon was released. It was 1971, and I would have been eight years old. To grow up in Cookham, as I did, was to be immersed in Spencer. I joined the church choir in the summer of 1971, and as I ran into choir practice, the first thing I saw, facing the church door, was Spencer's Last Supper. At the bottom of the high street, there was the Stanley Spencer Gallery, housed in the former Methodist Hall. I went to primary school with Spencer's grandson, John. My mother knew his daughter, Unity. There were many people in Cookham in those days who had known Spencer well, and a number of them featured in his greater paintings. Spencer died in 1959 in a hospital high above the Thames on the wooded escarpment that includes the Cliveden estate. I was born in the same hospital three years later. I must have seen the resurrection in reproduction before 1971, but that year I went for the first time with my parents to the Tate Gallery, now Tate Britain, where the painting hangs. It made an impression on me, as it does on everyone who sees it, though I cannot claim I particularly liked the painting at that point. I have never liked Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. Quite, far too easy. And having said, let's not imagine heaven, Lenin then does go on to imagine it, his version of heaven on earth at least. And in words that are dashed off, trite, a list of off-the-shelf lefty bromides with a twist of hippie ship mysticism. Yes, don't get me started on how poor this song is. I hate the tune too. By contrast, Spencer in The Resurrection asks a much more interesting question. Imagine there is a heaven. And then, using the iconography and imagery of canonical religious art, he arrives at a humble place. Heaven is not on a plane of transcendence, but rooted in a sense of homecoming, or if you are lucky, like Spencer and me, homestaying. Spencer, in his letters and his voluminous autobiographical writing, often uses the words homely, cosy. As he lay dying in Clifton Hospital, the vicar's wife, Rachel Westrop, read to him from one of his favourite books, The Wind in the Willows, which is also set in Cookham. I picture her reading the episode in which Mole visits his friend the water rat in his little home, with a bright fire in the parlour and an armchair in which Mole is planted, having been fetched a dressing gown and slippers, and supper is a most cheerful meal, and a most sleepy Mole is then escorted up to the best bedroom, where he soon lays his head on his pillow in great peace and contentment, as his new friend, the river, laps the sill of his window. One section of the resurrection is more troubling than the rest. A patch of the churchyard to the left of the flower-covered porch is in shadow, in darkness. Lying in the earth there, as if in a mass grave, are dark figures. As they emerge, they are clearly black-skinned. This part of the painting is generally interpreted as symbolising that all of mankind will share in the promise of the resurrection. It chimes with a later painting called Love Among the Nations, 1935, 
of which Spencer wrote, I have longed as usual to establish my union with those aspects of life which I feel are definitely with me and are not cut off by nationality. Love breaks down barriers. Back in the resurrection, the black figures look, understandably, bewildered, even inconsolable, that heaven has turned out to be an English country churchyard. But I think Spencer can be forgiven, even applauded for his inclusive instincts, even if he ends up striking a duff note. And perhaps a better title would have been a less universalist one, A Resurrection. This is a vision that settled Spencer's soul and soothes mine too. Of course, it won't do for everyone. You might even like Imagine. We won't fall out over it. Imagine a world where every woman discovers the superpower within by Taban Shoresh. I'd love every woman to discover the superpower within. It took me a long time to find my own personal superpower, but I believe in it's in every woman and can emerge when you least expect it. I was a child of war, born during Saddam Hussein's Iraqi regime and imprisoned aged just four. After escaping a plot to bury us alive, my family and I spent months in hiding, fleeing bombs and bullets at every turn. Even when we finally reached Iran on horseback, my father was on Hussein's hit list, suffered a near-fatal poisoning. He was flown to the UK by Amnesty International for treatment, but it was a year until we were reunited in London. So there I was, aged six, a fresh-faced and bewildered refugee, burying away years of trauma and turmoil deep within. Unsurprisingly, those layers of suppressed pain rose to the surface in early adulthood. After getting engaged at 18, I married the following year and had my son at age 20. Sadly, my marriage was not the blissful union I dreamed of. It was a turbulent and abusive marriage, which stripped away my confidence. Though alive on the exterior, I felt hollow and dead inside. Perhaps, inevitably, it took a toll on my health. I developed preeclampsia in pregnancy and was later diagnosed with Crohn's disease, all while completing my university studies and adjusting to motherhood. Choosing to divorce was riddled with further angst. It, was accept it wasn't accepted within the Kurdish culture and piled shame on my family. But I knew it was the right outcome, regardless of the threats I received from my husband. Leaving my marriage was the moment everything changed and despite being broken and shattered to the core, I felt the inner me rising. It was an incredible force. My own superpower was telling me I really could change my path and that a happier, more fulfilled life lay within my grasp. But I also recognised I'd need to channel huge untapped courage to take ownership of my future. So that's exactly what I did. I spent a decade rebuilding my life, unpicking the pieces of the past trauma and unravelling the patterns of self-disbelief that had been programmed into me. Slowly, I felt my strength growing and a new resilience beginning to unfurl. As the feeling grew more powerful, I realised I wanted to share it with other women and girls and help them uncover their hidden strength too.
This is why I established the Lotus Flower, a charity that supports women and girls impacted by conflict. Although they have suffered unimaginable ordeals, we provide the tools to rebuild their lives and in three years, we've, we've positively impacted the lives of 24,000 women and girls, which is remarkable given that I started the charity in my living room with virtually no money. More than ever, I wanted to experience to show that a superpower lies inside every woman and girl. It's there, just waiting for the moment you finally feel ready to let it work its magic. Swallows by Tom Slay I'm going to read a poem in three parts called Swallows. One. Now sudden stillness arrests the wind. The way their spread wing stasis turns the air to sundawn pediments, lifting them up like evidence that the invisible between us still holds sway. The future breathing right into our faces, lined with all that comes and goes, circling above us until they dive around our knees when they shear off down the shore current above the salt marsh. Scissor tails flexing as they bank and swerve in slats and panes of light, shattering around each feather's black chevrons, tense in the big whoosh, the tidal river foaming under the dike. You could live your whole life and never see something like this. You could imagine you were dead, a stake of sunlight through your heart, but never would you approach this finality of sight. Wingtip to wingtip, catching the underdraft, keeping their distance as a form of equilibrium. They move like a sixth sense that scans us in the drift and unworried calculation of millions of wings sailing trim to the wind, as if they steered the whole continent out into the ocean, hemisphere to hemisphere netted in their flight, black eye mass inquisitorial, but really not. Hunger, dip, flirt, splash, flies caught and caught, gulped whole, shat out. Three. Stunted scrub oak by the shore. Love and continuance Hinted in the way claws clench and unclench. How clear the tribes of hundreds are, Scattering like shrapnel to regroup in the air. They're twittering unconcerned, Knowing just where they are By knowing just where the others are. Waves flood the marsh banks, and scour clean the reeds that spring green above the rush of water 
scattering fish bones and washing at the dune. No gape-beaked bird twin, no fledging form, no young to be healed or left to die, no mud-nest other than this swooping joy. This swallow's papery skull, no bigger than my thumb, weighs less than a feather on my palm. An extract from We Are All Connected by Vesna Marek. Just before quarantine started, I bought myself a deck of tarot cards. I had found out that the Chilean film director and author Alejandro Hodorowski had written a lengthy study of the tarot, which took him 10 years to complete. I looked forward to immersing myself in his always enchanting, insightful, humorous work. So as COVID-19 made us all retreat into our homes for indeterminate periods of time, I thought I'd give myself a reading. What does the future have in store? I asked the deck. I drew Arcanum 21, the world. It is a beautiful card with heavenly symbols standing for purity and realization. I paraphrase for brevity Hodorowsky's interpretation of this card. The world in tarot is the number 21, the highest numerical value of the tarot, representing the supreme realization, the realization of androgyny. The card is a call to the recognition of the world in its deepest reality, an acceptance of fullness and realization. It is also the moment when, freed from self-destruction, we begin to glimpse the suffering of the other and put ourselves at the service of humanity. It felt both ironic and poignant to be faced with this potent symbolism for the world, a world currently dunked into an unprecedented form of chaos. And how odd, I thought, that this card carries the highest number, the highest state of existence. Should it not be the reverse, the most basic, the state from which we can begin living? But get real, I told myself. There are over 70 million people displaced around the world. Fascism and totalitarianism are the rule in one form or another in most of the countries at the economic forefront of the world. Think US, UK, Brazil, India, China, Russia. The systems that we live in and which produce this endless supply of world leaders were themselves founded on exploitation, slavery, displacement, domination, death. All of these were also forces that built societal privilege, reputation and wealth in awe of which we still live today. The cultural and education institutions we frequent and revere in the UK were funded by and benefited from the slave trade. Think Cambridge and Oxford universities, the Bank of England, the National Gallery, the Royal Academy, the Tate, the Victoria and Albert Museum and the British Museum, among others. The plantation profits from across the empire became private wealth and political power. The inheritance of that same wealth still fuels generations of privilege across upper and middle class Britain. And I repeat, there are more than 70 million people displaced around the world. In our world of hierarchy and individual empowerment, which is based on the reverence of wealth, we need the lesser other to strive to assimilate in order to be tolerated. 
We are taught to see poverty as a result of bad individual choices. We are led to believe that we can rise out of systemic social injustice on our own if we would just get our act together and try harder. We are taught to look vertically to seek profit from our exchanges. We claim that immigrants have to assimilate in order to be accepted, but expats can remain monolingual and uninvolved. In the UK, rates for prosecution and sentencing for black people remain three times higher than for white people. Ethnic minorities have much higher rates of unemployment. The list of inequalities goes on. So what of the world? What of our connection? Is it possible to free ourselves from self-destruction and begin to glimpse the suffering of the other and put ourselves at the service of humanity? We keep on being threatened by difference. We keep driving out the other from their home, across borders. We maintain the other lesser, illegal, and we use myriad ways to disconnect from our fellow human beings. How is all this still going on, and what can we do about it? I try to imagine. An extract from How a Korean Sport Made an Iranian Girl More American by Dina Nayeri. When I was 13, three years after arriving in the U.S. with my mother and brother, I devised a plan to get into the Ivy League. I was a refugee kid with no money and I lived in Oklahoma, where university means Tulsa or Stillwater, or if you're smart, somewhere in Texas. My mother, who had been a doctor in Iran, was now a single parent working in a factory. My father, who was a dental surgeon, had stayed in Iran and rarely sent money. Our sponsors, conservative Reaganite Christians who thought public assistance was a slippery slope to a lifetime of sloth, discouraged us from applying for temporary relief. It took all our energy just to continue living, working, and studying. I didn't have tutors or advisors. No one was bribing coaches or hiring consultants on my behalf. But I did have a vague notion that I needed more than good grades and test scores. I needed to transform into some, someone the books called a high achiever. Information was hard to come by at first. It was the 1990s, so whatever I knew about Harvard and Yale I got from 80s movies set in a muted and stylized 1950s for the super rich. My adolescence was all dead poet society and school ties. So, fantasizing about getting into a top university meant that I imagined myself as a well-heeled white boy from a good family, with brief interludes to go dancing in Nazi Germany a la Swing Kids. Basically, wherever Robert Sean Leonard went, I was there. One day, in my first or second year in the U.S., as I sat in Edmond Public Library reading Judy Bloom to beef up my English, I spotted a book lying open near the YA fiction rotary display. It was an old edition of a college admissions book, complete with rankings, statistics, test score minimums, and advice on activities and essays. The name at the top of the list, Harvard, was the only one any Iranian would recognize, so it took about three minutes for getting admitted there to become my entire life's purpose. The book told me that if I wanted to get into the best universities, I couldn't just be gifted at maths or writing. I would have to win medals and trophies. I would have to be sporty, arty, or a genius at something. A national championship wouldn't hurt. I admit that the notion that sport trophies got you into university in America struck me as bizarre for exactly one second before I gave myself up to it, incorporating it into my fantasy life the way a buzzing alarm clock gets incorporated into dreams. 
I was raised in the extreme academic tradition of Iranian medical households. To get into Tehran University, my parents had beaten thousands of their peers in a daunting exam called the concours. Still, this was the US, and so far everything had been weird. Iced tea and fruited yogurts, ground, milk, ground meat in a crunchy shell made of the same material as snack chips, people in commercials grinning about anal disease and heavy flow periods, a fitness show called Sit and Be Fit. I had learned to suspend disbelief and just roll with stuff. I decided to give it a try. I could be sporty. Why not? An extract from Imagine a World Where Walking Was for Joy and Not to Escape from Danger by Anita Sethi. Imagine a world where walking was for joy and not to escape from danger. In summer 2019, I walked through the South Downs and along the English border from Brighton to Hastings with a group of refugees, asylum seekers and migrants formerly held in indefinite detention. At each stop-off there would be an evening of storytelling and music. I had been invited by the Refugee Tales to host the Eastbourne event and suggested I also do the whole walk, along the way fundraising for the charity the Gatwick Detainees Welfare Group, of which the Refugee Tales is a part, each footstep aiming to walk towards a better future. The walk was purposefully towards the border, where the people I walked with had been detained, the theme of borders and border crossings reflected on throughout our journey. Walking for so many people is an act of necessity, walking to escape danger, to flee home seeking a safer life, yet often facing further danger and hostility. My walk along the border led us to imagine a world where walking could be an act of hope, of joy and of community. The walk set off from Brighton where we were welcomed by Caroline Lucas MP, co-leader of the Green Party, who gave a powerful speech before the walk set off. We need to continue pressurising the government to end the hostile environment, she said. More than anything, this is about ending indefinite detention. It's a scandal that in the 21st century we treat human beings in that way. She spoke of visiting Yarlswood Immigration Removal Centre, where people endure psychological torture, not knowing how long they will be held there. Lucas encouraged walkers, What we're doing today is a vital part of spreading a different message. A message of welcome, of compassion, of love. As we walked, each footstep felt one of hope. As the writer of Ali Smith, patron of the refugee tale, said when she welcomed us near the end of our journey, how fine your feet are in the world, you're walking towards the better imagined. Thank you for listening to this special podcast from Damien Barr's Literary Salon. You can read the full anthology at www.imagineanthology.com. For more salon exclusives, in-depth interviews and stories, sign up to our newsletter at www.theliterarysalon.co.uk. Thank you.